Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout-out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and AHA That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. So for now, hey, our fearless friends, here's Lisa Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 175 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, we are joined by yet another phenomenal guest. So who is my guest of this Friday? Well, what I can tell you is that Bob Andrew Fuller, as a clinical psychologist, started working in psychiatric crisis teams with people who were at their last hopes. And that inspired him to create with people and their future so that they could fall in love with them. His work with over 3,500 schools and with more than 500,000 young people has identified the concept of the resilient mindset and also the three main components of resilience, connect, protect, and respect, CPR. Andrew is an honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne and has been a scientific consultant for the ABC. He is an ambassador for Adolescent Success, the Lions Club, Alcohol and Awareness Foundation, and Mind Matters. He has also been a principal consultant to the Department of Education Bully Stoppers Initiative and the National Drug Prevention Strategy, REDI, and is a regular presenter on Radio National. Andrew's research on neurodevelopmental differentiation takes the research on resilience and positive education back into the classroom where it can make the most difference. He is the author of Tricky Behaviors and Your Best Life at Any Age. You can find Andrew online at www.andrewfuller.com.au. Welcome to the show, Andrew. How are you, my friend? Great. Great to be with you, Lisa. Thank well, you so much. It's a pleasure to have you and it's an honor to have you. So uh, everybody, again, who listens to my show, which, again, I'm very grateful for, knows that this is unscripted dialogue. So there's no scripted Q&A, nothing of the sort. So what I generally like to start with, Andrew, is um, the inception of my guest journey. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, generally speaking, for where people wind up today, for how people can glean the trajectory of what it is they've endeavored to do, what it is that they feel passion uh, driven, purpose driven about. Usually there's a correlation of something that pertains specifically to their backstory. So when I hear of some of these initiatives that you're very passionate about, um, is it safe to presume that some of these issues, call it bullying, things of that nature, affected you in your childhood? Well, I was certainly uh, somebody who thought very strongly about justice and injustice as a child. I grew up uh, in a country town um, mm -hmm. and basically, of course, people often tr treat 
kids or kids treat one another fairly badly i think in those in those kind of say areas sometimes and uh, a bit harshly i think and while i was very fortunate i was uh sort of prematurely tall for my age so there's always an advantage in being an early developer um uh-huh. uh yeah, i certainly got to watch other kids suffering and uh, i decided to try to look out for them i suppose and so that's been partly my role throughout my life really is thinking about how do you increase justice and and how do you help people treat one another better in a way so in in a way it's not so much from uh a woundedness or an injury thankfully i'm i'm delighted to say but okay. also but probably more from a kind of quest or mission beautiful beautiful and so when we look at some of the issues that are transpiring and unfolding on the global stage as of today uh, whether we talk about escalated violence in the Middle East, whether we talk about things such as Me Too, uh, we talk about Black Lives Matter, things of those na- nature, Andrew. Um, what, what's your perception of what's going on right now? Do you think that these subject matters are perhaps more magnified because there's an increased awareness and people finally want to step up to the plate and they want to talk about it? Um, what, what's your perception on that? It's interesting, Lisa. I think 2020 was a watershed year and probably retrospectively we'll look back on life pre-2020 and life post-2020 in quite different ways. I think um, obviously we can think about uh, 9-11 as another example of that. We could also think about um, also 1995 I think was an example of that too which is really the year that lots of people got on board in terms of connectivity and so there's sort of particular years I think that just changed the trajectory of history and while whenever that happens there's a sort of eruption of issues because of course the world is then kind of re uh, re kind of calibrating itself so in some ways what looks from the external eye to be a, a bit distressing or like somehow things are, are getting worse it's actually part of the world getting better mm-hmm. so for example you know me you for example you know obviously clearly it's a call for us all to treat one another with greater respect and with greater thoughtfulness and greater humanity so uh while it sort of certainly challenges things and you know as does black lives matter and so on of course it's it's about how do we become a fairer world and so i think there's more cause for optimism of out of all of this creating a kinder cleaner greener world than we had before and i think that's an exciting possibility agreed I wholeheartedly agree with that. So based on that answer then, Andrew, are you of uh, the mindset, are you of the belief that people are more empathic? Are, are you, do you have a sense that collectively speaking, humanity is rising? Or do you still believe that, I mean, there's always room for improvement. There's always, you know, people who need to rise their conscious uh, vibration and their frequency and things of that nature. But generically speaking, for what you see playing out on the global stage, are you inclined to believe that people are more consciously evolved? Do you think people are more empathic? Do you think people are more intrinsically compassionate? 
They're getting there. I think there's a there's sort of a slight two conflicting things going on at the moment, and that's always the way when you get this kind of these turbulent times. Um, mm -hmm. One is because people have been wearing masks, they are less connected. So essentially, what happens is the people almost hide behind their masks a bit, and you know, get out of my way. I, you know, basically, I'm just getting on with the business of my day. So there's a dehumanising aspect to mask wearing. I mean, obviously, we have to wear masks for health reasons at times. But at the same time, that does create a disconnect in people. Mm. But I had the great privilege of working with lots and lots of people, uh, particularly young people. And I often have hypothetical debates around issues to do with justice and issues around uh, treating people well. Uh, and uh, what I'm always impressed by by, by young people is while it's easy to kind of bemoan the, the next generation coming up, I've got to tell you, they're smart. And mm. they're thoughtful and mm -hmm. they're moral mm -hmm. and they really think through things in a way that I wish my generation had. So I, I tip my, lat, my, my hat to, to the, the current generation of kids because I think they're going to be tuned in in ways that are exciting for the world. Well, I love and appreciate that you said that, Andrew, because I think oftentimes there's a generic stereotype that's floating around that the children of this generation, the one upon us, um, you know, that there's a sense of entitlement or they don't have the same work ethic or they're more inclined to take things for granted because things have been spoon fed or it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a screen generation, devices, technology, and you don't see people outside using their imagination to cultivate their own entertainment, things of that nature. So, you know, there, and there's always competing schools of thought, and it's usually based on the filter of what's going on with the person inside, because everything's an inside job. So, you know, I, I really appreciate you saying that, because when it comes to observing my own two children, I'm of the same elk, uh, the belief system of what you are. I, I really think that my two children being the old souls they are, uh, I think they could run circles around a lot of people my age. Um, so yeah. that's lovely that you say that. And when we talk about the youth of today, and I know that you're quite impassioned by that, Andrew, you know, when you talk about the correlation between the youth of today and the subject matter, um, the principle as it pertains to justice, where do you feel justice is served for that particular demographic? Where do you think that justice is still skewed or, you know, when we talk about the haves or the have nots in terms of things that would fall into the category of injustices as it's tied back to the younger generation, where do you think we have yet to go to aspire? What do you think we're still struggling with or in denial about? I love your line that everything is an inside job, by the way. Thank <laughs> you. Well, it is. Concept. It absolutely <laughs> is, though. And you would know it that is. as a clinical psychologist. Yeah, so I often say the way out is in. You know, yes. So that basically, to, to get through this, you have to turn into yourself. Um, and so it's interesting at the moment because, of course, what we have then is a group of people who are, I suppose, a bit vigilante and a bit in their protest mode. And that's always the way that it's been. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I think what happens over time is that sort of gets absorbed into a real change. So what moves from the periphery of society into mainstream starts as protest and then becomes accepted. And so in some ways, I think this is true 
not only in the macro sense of a society as it starts to struggle with different issues and change them, they end up being, you know, the protests around climate or Black Lives Matter or gender issues or diversity or identification or pronouns or there's a heap of them going on at the moment and it's mm-hmm. all exciting. But it's it's still, it's in that emergent phase at the moment, I think. And uh, what we'll see over the next year or two is that some of these issues start to mature and become, well, why, why not? Why haven't we thought that? And I think that's true um, externally, but it's also true internally. So it's almost like helping people generally dare to dream a bit about what might life be possible after the mayhem of 2020. So we can return to, and there is a lot of um, sort of impulse to return to business as usual. Uh, I watch as schools kind of are, are talking about we need to catch up and, you know, lower the learning gap that occurred in 2020, forgetting, of course, all of the wonderful lessons that kids did learn while they Absolutely. were basically at home. Um so just completely ignoring that and completing all the inventiveness the teachers did in terms of revolutionising educational yes. methodologies in that time. And so we've got to be very careful that we just don't allow those gains to evaporate or just move on into a sort of, I don't know, a closed down, a sort of safe spot, but but one that's not not really grown in terms of its maturity. So one of the things that uh, COVID has done around the world, I think, has to highlight, tragically, um, the weak spots in our society. So that basically where people have not been treated well is where infections run rampant. And so essentially then it is a strong lesson to us all about if we want to pandemic-proof our future... We need to be more protective of people. We need to be more caring. We need to think more thoughtfully and plan more thoroughly about how to have common decency and common well-being because we survive, uh, well, as we've always survived through the strength of our relationships. But, uh, uh, well, COVID doesn't doesn't basically discriminate. So basically uh, when one person gets it, then everybody else is a bit more damaged or at risk. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, obviously the subject of the pandemic has arisen on many of my more recent shows, well, spanning a year, of course, more than a year now. And, you know, it's the one, it's the one situation, it's the one plight that we can all relate to, you know, as much as people might be compassionate for the cause of cancer or multiple sclerosis or addictions or, you know, a number of different charities, cause initiatives, endeavors, things of that nature. And it's not to say that people consciously want to turn a blind eye, but everybody for their own reasons, life circumstances or what's happened in their immediate circles, it's usually because of that they feel more a draw or a pull towards something specific. So when you look at the pandemic and you take into account that this is the one circumstance event situation that we can all simultaneously relate to, identify with, and, and, uh, and empathize with, I think it's really opened up the heart space um, and the intuitiveness of all of us in our uh, needing to, you know, as a result of lockdown, more introspecting that's going on, more reflecting, people are being more thoughtful, um, people are reevaluating and reprioritizing 
what was it I used to put precedence or priority on before that now seemingly no longer matters. Um, so I think because it's the one experience that we can all relate to, we can all identify with, we can all empathize with, I really do believe that this is the Earth's way of saying you needed to experience this. You know, you needed, everybody needed to collectively put on the brakes and go deeper within to recognize what was broken, what wasn't working, what wasn't perhaps being appreciated, valued, or respected. Um, and I really hope no differently than situations that have arisen in the past, as you had mentioned, Andrew, at the top of the hour, 9-11, you know, everybody comes together on the global level, the grief, the compassion, the unity, all of that. But then that that just seems to go away and gets replaced with yet another tragedy, another crisis, which not everybody can personally identify with. So then you still get that level of desensitization or arm's length. That's not not my backyard type attitude. And so I really hope that this is one event that's transformed us all, that we don't forget the life lessons. We don't, we don't overlook the fragility of life. We don't start taking things for granted again when we start to tap into our freedoms again. So what are what is your, what are your projections for the lingering residual impact that you hope will still permeate throughout humanity? I think that it's left people thanks Lisa. I think that it's left people hungry for hope and mm -hmm. hungry for connection. So in a way, yes, you could you could imagine a world in which um, splintering people into to fragmented sections of society and setting up against one another. And certainly there is some of that. But basically, I think the idea that we are collectively, as you said, that that sort of common experience, what we so in some ways, it's a bit like having been through a war, but we're yet to have the victory day. And so it's interesting to think about how we might then celebrate once we're through this, that kind of community achievement. Um, and I think that's an important element in this, that basically this isn't just an ongoing war that eats away at people's soul. It's a chance to, to build a different world and to build up a sense of hope. The second part, I guess, is to that we yearn for connection. So, and this has probably affected younger people more powerfully than people of my own age group, where the belief was, I think, for lots of them, that a virtual world would suffice. That basically, mm -hmm. I can basically connect with my, my friends and play games with them and basically not really see them face to face. And what uh, last year showed them was that that isn't actually a replacement for face-to-face -face connection. That people do like to hang out together. They do like to kind of joust about ideas and they do like to have fun with one another. And so that's an important lesson too, just to remind us of the importance that each of us have. So I often say that we can only be as healthy as our relationships. And I think in some ways, 2020 proved that, you know, you, mm. you, you can't, really have a fulfilling life just virtually accessing people and connecting over whatever you know communication device you've got absolutely absolutely and so i imagine 
you know, in spite of the lockdown and in spite of, you know, people having to reside within their own residence at different times, here in Canada, we're in our third wave. I'm not quite sure what the status is in Melbourne. I think Australia, correct me if I'm wrong, you've been ahead of the curve for quite some time now. Yes, we've been very fortunate. We um, So in June of last year, Melbourne in Victoria, where I live in the south of part of Australia, had the same number of cases as Britain and France. And then mm -hmm. really we had quite an extensive lockdown and um, really it's been, it's, there's no community transmission here at all. So mask wearing has passed at the moment at least. And Fantastic. business basically has, re has returned. So we're at a different stage than you are, uh, sadly, for your your country but at the same time it, hopefully it's also a model of what can be done when people care for one another absolutely and so when you didn't come out from underneath the rock when you did but when you were submerged in the situation of doing things online and still connecting with people and employing your expertise Andrew you know was there a common thread between the feedback that you were receiving or and the younger generation, um, you know, were, was there a collective consensus on what it was they specifically were grappling with? Because I know here in Canada, um, and I don't know if it's just specific to Canada, but since the pandemic hit last, last March, you know, a lot of addictions, abuse, domestic violence, things of that nature, suicide, it's been up uh 200%, if not beyond that. So I'm just wondering, what were you seeing in Melbourne specifically within your community, within the people within your community? What were they most afflicted by? Um, what was going on for you there? Sure. So in, I'll start actually with um, my professional community because that's an interesting perspective as well. So that, yes. um, that the professional community, in fact, took it in some ways as an opportunity to reflect and connect. And so quite a lot of creative, productive work was dur done during that time because people could kind of focus on unfinished projects and connect. And so there was an enormous amount of collaboration around the world in terms of neuroscience, understanding brains and uh, understanding young people and psychologists were basically thinking about this as a common issue. And so there's some excitement around some of that. And I think many of those uh, and I'm sure that's true probably of many of the artistic endeavours as well that people connected to. And so we're going to be the beneficiaries of that because, of course, that in terms of information will pour out over the next year or two, which is exciting. So that's the upside. Mm -hmm. um, the downside, of course, was that basically we had groups of people who were addicted. And essentially what I saw was that of course, because the movement of um, the ingredients of some drugs were harder to shift around our country, mm -hmm. that uh, in some ways drugs became dodgier, if you like, if that's a word that you understand that yeah, basically it's a, I do. yeah, that kind of, kind of, so the ingredients were more dangerous. And so we saw an increase in overdose firstly was one of the things that we saw. Um, mm -hmm. Also the isolation. I mean, it's, it's just not that much fun to really be that lonely, mm -hmm. I think. And so essentially, and uh, you know, basically families of course were incredibly under the pump. I mean, 
it's hard to imagine probably being locked in with even your best friend for an extended period for too long. But then if your best mm-hmm. friend decides to use the occasion to try and improve you and uh, uh, give you some lessons about basically some of the things you're doing wrong and ways to change them, um, <laughs> you, you want to get out there out of there pretty quickly, don't you? you know? yeah. <laughs> so I think that's the way most teenagers felt about it. You know, get me out of this family. Right. Get me out get me hanging out with other friends quickly, you know. So it was a high-pressure situation for them. And so they had to find advanced ways of, of uh, closing off. And so I think headphones were, or buds were, a very powerful uh, bit of armory against yes. parenting, really. Yeah. So And lots of parents, parents that I talked to said, it's fantastic, I can spend more time with my, my teenager and really help them to kind of understand. And I could just watch the teenager's eyes rolling. <laughs> <laughs> this is the last thing I want, you know. Oh, no. Right. So it's fascinating, really, to watch that. Um, but yeah, there is, a, as I said before, that certain, what they've come out of it with is the certainty around what the what's right and wrong in the world. And I think that's the enjoyable part of it as well, that there's a clarity to them that uh, they didn't have prior to 2020. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting. There was a, a, a feature story on our local news program, and they were talking about um, they were doing studies on babies who were born during the pandemic. And of course, if they were with their mom, dad, whatever the family constellation unit looked like, they were used, they were accustomed to seeing their mom, their dad without the masks. But then when the baby would go out into public and start to recognize, okay, mommy and daddy have the mask on, as does everyone else. It's, it's rewiring the neurology of neurologically a, a baby's mind for how a baby's mind would generally develop under different circumstances without the existence of a pandemic. So they're doing all kinds of interesting uh, studies right now to look at babies who are born specifically in this pandemic, what that's going to do to them cognitively, developmentally, emotionally in the years to come. And I think that's probably true of older children and teenagers as well, that our our social muscles have become a bit rusty. Yeah. And so the the reading of um I mean it's hard with a mask anyway, but even without a mask, the sort of ability to read other people's feelings accurately mm-hmm. and and respond to them appropriately has become a bit of a well, it's not a lost art, but we don't want to get too dramatic about it, but at the same time it's <laughs> it's something that people are a bit rusty about. And so we need to reawaken that kind of ability to kind of connect with people and connect with how they're feeling behind the behavior. Absolutely. So what do you foresee, um, you know, if we're projecting ahead to, to you know, 2020, 2022, you know, whether we're talking about innovation um, and, of course, because people have been forced to take businesses online, people have had to learn new skill sets and people are now looking at, oh, OK, well, maybe I don't need to go into work, you know, maybe I can be an entrepreneur, maybe I can work with my clients online, you know, so there's a lot of changes that I think are going to carry forward, in spite of when things so called return to normal. But in terms of future trends, uh, whether it be the aftermath, you know, people having Uh, When we talk about fight or flight, people who have had to remain steadfast in the throes of the pandemic, 
But when the pandemic lifts and then all of a sudden there's this sigh of relief, that's when I think things are going to hit people emotionally, um, like a tsunami, things that have been things that have been compartmentalized, things that have been uh, kept to themselves, things that have just been squandered for the sake of getting through the day, things of that nature. So what, what do you see, whether we're talking about business, whether we're talking about the future of the family unit, whether we're talking about um, how we all interact on the global stage, whether we get to a more coherent, more compassionate state of being unified, rising in solidarity, collectively overcoming some of our old issues that we can now look back on and go like, were we not being trivial? Were we not being superficial? Were we not being egoic? And maybe taking the lessons of what we've individually and collectively learned as a result of the pandemic and all the introspection that hopefully the majority of us have taken advantage of with this additional time in our own skin, in our own thoughts, um, what what do you foresee? What do you project going forward? Whether it be the upside, the downside, the, the yet to be determined side. Well, Lisa, how long have we got? <laughs> okay, <laughs> so let's start. Let's start. I mean, one of the most powerful things is allostatic stress, which some of your listeners may know and others not. So let's explain that a little bit. Mm. So that basically. Uh, allostatic stress, and people know about it, even though you may not be familiar with the term. All of us at some stage in our lives have scraped a knee or accidentally cut a, you know, a, a minor cut or something. And at the moment, at that time, have gone, oh, goodness me, I'm bleeding. I need to band-aid and, and rush off and got one. But there are also times when we've wounded ourselves in a minor way. And it's only later on that we've kind of realized, oh, I'm bleeding or, you know, basically done a, a fairly major bruise there or what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that delayed kind of reaction is allostatic stress. Now, what mm -hmm. we're seeing is that 2020 provided exactly that. So that essentially, because it was so consuming, people weren't able to process all of what was going on for them. And so when you have unprocessed material in your life, you don't get the chance to think your way through things. Uh, it comes into the body and is stored in the body. And it's often stored as exhaustion. And so what we see early on I mean, last year, it was interesting, in terms of my clinical work, normally I get to see lots of people with anxiety and depression and lots of rumination in terms of thinking. But last year, it was much more deep gut disturbance. So lots of sleep disturbance and lots of uh, basically digestive nausea, all mm -hmm. that kind of icky stuff, right? And so that was what was going on because it was a much more lower level stress. It was a much more, you know, surrender stress in a way. I give up. I've got no idea what to do. And so the aftershock of that is that lots of the people that I talk to are just exhausted. They're just weary. They, they, you know, they just are tired in a way some of them have never been before in their lives. And they're mm -hmm. just wondering why am I, is there something dreadfully wrong with me? And it's not, it's just this, this delayed kind of process of, of your body catching up with the uh, after waves of 2020. And so I think that's the first part just to be aware of that. It's a, it's a, it's a calling of course, that we need to recover and we need to take care of ourselves and to be really aware of what 
what gives us energy. So that's a that's a whole topic if if we want to discuss that. So mm-hmm. that's that's the first that's the first part that it really requires. Well being becomes everybody's business because everyone's sort of really a bit uh, uh, fragile, a bit and a bit kind of exhausted. Um, that's the, se- the the second part. I think is that there's this incredible opportunity to reinvent isn't there the sort of crazy world of of getting in your car or getting on public transport and racing to an office or wherever you work and then racing back home and trying to cook for kids and have the whole (laughs) kind of disaster going on every day just looks like lunacy to somebody who was able to replicate that online so Mm -hmm. there is advisedly and wisely, I think a reluctance for some people to go back full-time into their workplaces, why the hell would you? Um, Exactly. It's just craziness. (laughs) And so here's an opportunity to go, and I know some bosses are freaking out and going, how do I know that they're working, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, But there's there's ways around that and there's ways of just measuring an outcome rather than process. So it requires a different world and a different mindset. And I think that's true as well. And I think also we had families who were um, really going through major struggles during this time. I mean, I had a number of clients in my therapy room who were saying, thank God, we separated just before the pandemic. You know? mm-hmm. um, I'm not, I wasn't locked in with him or her. Um, there was that certain that sentiment from some of them. Others were locked in together, and really the the sort of the the fault lines in their relationships showed up gigantically. Mm-hmm. So that they really, by the end of it, really were just ready to part and possibly never see one another for a couple of years. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so there was an increase of hostility or or difficulty. So really really was a bit of a litmus test year, wasn't it, in terms of how how much you like the other person. Forget about love. <laughs> Love's okay, but that liking became so critical. You know, yes. if you like your partner and you like your family members, that was so critical. But if you didn't, whew, really tough times. So that was a really fascinating area to think about as well. So work was reinvented. Productivity was in some ways up, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. generally speaking kids in terms of coming in for therapy it was really interesting some were just missing the sports and the connection and the games and hanging around at lunchtime and doing all of that kind of stuff but there are a group of other students who'd come in and go this is fantastic you know i get all <laughs> of my school work done by, by midweek and the rest of the week's mine and you know i just love this you know and so for Really what it called out in terms of education was that we do need to cater for different students in different ways. The social kids obviously need somewhere to go to, but there are a group of students who probably study best and learn best at 3 a.m. virtually and to have virtual schools that they can attend and download or access lessons as they can Mm-hmm. Is, is a dramatic opportunity, really. So it becomes then a possibility of having a sort of a school of the air or a distance education school or, or something for some students where they thrive best under that circumstance. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about you personally in terms of, I mean, for the role that you play and for how you may have been personally impacted by the pandemic. But I think for your chosen vocation, you are probably, I think it's safe to presume, a lot more evolved. You have a good sense of self. Uh, you know, you'd be very astute with your own level of self-awareness. You would know how to problem solve. You would know when you're off, what to do to recalibrate. 
your mindset and things of that nature. But let's not forget, in spite of your expertise or your foresight, your insight, um, you know, you're still a human being. And I know from once upon a time in my previous vocation of working for 25 years in crisis management in social services, um, you know, we talked a lot about vicarious trauma, particularly for mm. the ca- the counselors who were picking up the immediate initial calls. And it could be it could be horrendous what they were on the other end having to listen to or what came through the doors. You know, we were 24 seven residential care, uh, police, EMS, everything. So from your perspective, um, knowing that, you know, you're the dumping ground for what goes on in people's heads, what goes on in their lives, what goes on in their homes, um, you would be privy to a lot of shocking information. Um, and I know that there's a level of professionalism where you have to be somewhat desensitized so that you yourself aren't completely impacted and therefore ineffective with your clients. But in the situation where you're compounded personally, as we all have been as a result of the pandemic, then you take a look at what it is you specifically do for a living and knowing that people, their level of crisis would be exacerbated, would be heightened. Uh, and you would be perhaps on the receiving end of more so of that than what would be considered normal or average or typical for your line of work. So what, what did you do to decompress? Like, who do you go to? So, yes, that's absolutely correct. I think the, the level of distress in the community, just because of course, nobody had really dealt with this sort of challenge before was enormous. And so, Time after time after time, I'd be seeing generally young people, but probably especially people in their 20s who were feeling that life was no longer worth living. Mm-hmm. And so they would come in and that's what they would say. Now, when I work with people who are thinking that way, I'll talk to them in an interesting way. So I'll just talk about that for a moment and then I'll come back and talk about the effect of it. So basically um, what I say to them is, well, which parts of yourself do you want to kill off? And which parts of yourself do you want to live on? And they look at mm-hmm. me rather curiously because they go, well, hang on. Here's somebody talking about <laughs> killing off parts of me. But, but in a way, that's what happens to us all. So that mm-hmm. there, we, as we travel through life, there are parts of us that should be, you know, relegated to the <laughs> sort of past, the, you know, past their use-by date that we do need to kill off. And there are parts that we want to live on. And so I, I then sort of say to them, well, is it okay if we try, if we work together to kill off those parts that you want to kill off and have those parts live on while you remain alive while we're doing it? Because it won't, won't work if you don't remain alive. And uh, people are intrigued by that and they work well in that area. So, but of course then doing that work over and over and over again with heightened people, becomes just incredibly tiring. So by the end of the year, I think uh, you're a bit shell-shocked yourself. Um, we'd had also in Australia, we'd had bushfires in the early part of the year. And so normally I would be traveling around working with communities that had been bushfire affected as well. And so there was the frustration also of not being able to reach those people and help them. So there was a, a sort of double whammy of kind of having this increased impact. And so... As with all of us, I think, while certainly having good friends and good colleagues and people to talk through is important, it's, as I said earlier, it's, it's important to recognise that some of the 
the stress becomes stored physically in the body. And mm-hmm. so doing things like dancing, singing, moving, uh, just basically walking it, really the things that help you physically to process just some of the buildup of stress is so important. Um, Fortunately, by the end of the year, in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, it was summer and uh, being able to go to the beach and and catch a wave and that kind of stuff was incredibly powerful just to help recover from that. But uh, I think this is true, yes, of me and my own professional career, but I think it's true of everybody that we're all dealing with this heightened sense of alarm and kind of alertness. So it becomes very difficult. Well, knowing yourself is what you do. And I don't know if you've gone through or endured anything on a similar scale to the pandemic, um, you know, and, and, and looking at that from the dynamic of what you do for a living and also just you as an individual and doing what's intuitively in your best interest to keep you ahead of the curve and to keep you on top of things uh, so that you don't implode and you don't go under. But knowing yourself as well as you do, Andrew, and knowing that you can foresee and project that there's going to be some kind of onslaught down the road because we've all had to keep ourselves somewhat composed and we've had to keep feelings at bay perhaps, but knowing when things start to lift and then we know it's safe to unleash and we can breathe and, you know, we're, we're going to start to tap into things that perhaps we didn't even realize we were holding on to. So in the case of yourself and knowing yourself as well as what you do, are you concerned or are you able to project what you think might be likely at least on some minuscule scale of what you yourself are going to be grappling with that you might want to proactively get on top of now if it's even possible? Well, I think it's true for all of us that things could get a bit messy because, Mm -hmm. as you said, the unprocessed stuff comes, rises to the surface. And, of course, as Carl Jung once obviously and very wisely said, what, what is suppressed basically is expressed as as symptom and so what we can then see is that kids particularly will express their distress through their behavior and that's happening in schools we see you know uh, school principals saying well they're yet they're at this level but actually they're two years behind because they haven't kind of they're not acting like the mature students that I want them to be and so in a way we do need to have some rituals in our society so we have to have personal rituals that help Mm -hmm. us to recover and connect with ourselves and I've been very conscious this year of taking time to do that for myself because otherwise if you don't free up some time to think about things to in some ways write your a different future for yourself is important Mm -hmm. as well uh, and sometimes to map your own life. I find life mapping to be a really valuable thing for all of us. So mm-hmm. um, in all of our histories, there are ups and downs and thinking about how we've recovered from times that have been tough and people, all people do that to some extent and how we enjoy and celebrate the positive times are important. And I think, so it's a time to kind of uh, encapsulate your life and to think about what the next phase of life should look like. That's an important part of, of doing this. Um, but the other part is just to really take some time to thoughtfully consider what is best for you. In a, in a world that's changed, there are opportunities. There are threats, but there are also great opportunities. And really what we need to do to be resilient is to capitalise on those opportunities and they're different and so it's being rather than being stuck in the trying to reinvent the past it's about inventing a new pathway for yourself 
Beautiful. So with your particular stage of where you would be at in life, Andrew, has the pandemic and knowing, you know, un, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, you're never going to go out of business, right? There's always going to mm-hmm. be people with problems. There's always going to be people that are looking for somebody to facilitate uh, solutions um, and things of that nature that would fall within your job description. So has what's transpired within the pandemic and knowing that there's going to be uh, a tsunami of even more need that would be compatible with what it is you do and therefore the volume of people perhaps increasing for who you can then continually provide service to. Are you feeling more attracted to that? Are you feeling more a calling to that? Or are you looking at where you're at in this stage in life and knowing what has yet to hit which therefore means what has to hit your doorstep. Are you thinking this might be a good time to leave or do something different or do something that I perhaps have shelved because my work has, as much as you love your work and you're committed to your work and your clients, um, but it's been all consuming. Like, where are you at with the next stage of your life? So it's interesting because there's, there's a sort of different, there's a split pathway. There's there's suddenly some people who are coming in with heightened levels of problems and symptoms and family issues that need care. But there's also a group of people who are realising that 2020 presented them with an existential crisis and they need to think more inventively about their life. And so for some of those people, um, just having a one-off session where they talk about basically replanning their life is sufficient for them to kickstart them in that, that pathway. So mental health services have been deluged throughout this time. And so I need to be very inventive about the way that I work so that it becomes more powerful in some ways. It's, it's, but the other part of it is to really think, because I think while traditionally times of difficulty have led to people generally being more conservative, my prediction, maybe I'm being too optimistic, I'm not sure, is that that's not going to happen, that people actually yearn more powerfully for the politics of hope and possibility. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it's a, a, one of the, the wonderful byproducts of Donald Trump, I don't know, um, mm-hmm. that they really yearn, they, they saw that and go, that's not good enough. We need something much, much better than that. And so I think the politicians that talk about the structural changes that need to happen and being somebody who can advise them slightly, if they'll listen, uh, on some of the things <laughs> that we need to do to build stronger communities and mm-hmm. to celebrate the successes when we're through them is important. And so in some ways, that higher level rather than individual or family work, but to be dealing with what is a society we need to do now to shape a better future. Okay. Well, being cognizant of time, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to share with the listening audience and the podcast subscribers, where can people connect with you? Where can people reach out to you and what might be upcoming? I'm sure you do a lot of speaking engagements. You might have another book in the works. What would you like to share with the listening audience, Andrew? Uh, Thanks, Lisa. Um, I wrote a book called Your Best Life at Any Age, which was a distillation of 500,000 people. I'd mentioned life mapping earlier. So Mm -hmm. I... uh, 
ask i mean I, I run workshops and so of course it's great to get people to do things for me which is lovely of them and uh 500,000 people have done my workshops and basically mapped their lives and i put that together in a book which talks about different phases of life and what you need to do in order mm -hmm. to have a great life really um because what's required at one stage of life is completely different than another and Correct. While you think the old game plan is going to work, well, it doesn't. Um, and that's really clear, clearly kind of elaborated on or illustrated by the people that I've, uh, I've spoken to and their life maps. And it's really useful to look a bit down the track or a bit around the corner and see what might be coming for you in your life and start to think about how you might plan for that rather than just waiting and reacting to it. And so that's probably the main way, really, of doing that. Plus, my website has lots of free downloads as well. And what is your website again, Andrew? It's uh, www.andrewfuller.com.au. Mm -hmm. And there's another one, which is mylearningstrengths.com. And mylearningstrengths.com enables people to analyze their learning strengths and get a free letter that says uh, that actually spells those out. And the reason I did that was because I thought very few kids get to hear about something that they're good at from someone who's neither their teacher nor yes. their parent. And in the short time, that's been up. 27,000 students from around the world have done it. And uh, the feedback's fantastic. So Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Well, Andrew, I can't thank you enough for the gift of your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, we, we touched upon a lot of things that are near and dear to my heart. I could talk about these subject matters ad nauseum and never blink an eye. So I, I want to thank you for making it educational, for making it meaningful. Um, and you've been a delight to have on my show, Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. You're welcome to come back anytime, my friend. And uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch. We absolutely will. And to the listening audience, I want to thank you as well for the gift of your time, for kindly tuning in to myself and my guest of this Friday, Andrew Fuller. And uh, I would encourage you to connect with him. Buy his book, go online, see what he's offering, see what might be deemed a suitable fit for you in terms of where you might be at. Uh, what what extra wisdom you might derive benefit from. So, Andrew, I can't thank you enough. I'm very exceptionally clear on my purpose. My purpose is to uplift you to fear less and to live more. Until next Friday when we're joined by yet another phenomenal guest, I wish everybody here all my best. Please stay safe, healthy, and uplifted. Love and gratitude to all of you and to you as well, Andrew. Take care. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's been a delight. My pleasure. All my best. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and Aha That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. And until next week, our fearless friends, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio telling you to be your own hero, be your own hero, be your own leader, and be your own best friend. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.